Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. They say that good things come in threes. If so, then the Supreme Court thinks that taking bankruptcy jurisdiction cases is a very good thing. In 2011, in the case of Stern v. Marshall, the Supreme Court shocked the bankruptcy bench and bar by striking down as a violation of Article III of the Constitution the statute permitting bankruptcy courts to issue a final judgment as to certain state law counterclaims by the estate against creditors, at least absent the party's consent. Although the court observed that its decision would not meaningfully change the division of labor between bankruptcy and district courts, courts and litigants were left uncertain about how far Stern's rationale extended. What other claims that Congress had designated as core were outside the bankruptcy court's constitutional authority to adjudicate? How should bankruptcy and district courts handle such so-called stern claims? Would the party's consent change the analysis? And if so, would consent implied from the party's actions suffice? The court's recent decision in executive benefits answered some of the questions left open. The court held that when faced with so-called stern claims, bankruptcy courts are not barred from taking any action at all, as some courts had held, but may enter proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law for de novo review by the district courts. The Supreme Court made clear that when a district court in fact provides de novo review, as occurred in executive benefits itself, the Constitution is satisfied. However, the court left open other important issues. Most significantly, the court failed to answer a key question that is the subject of a circuit split. Can bankruptcy courts enter final judgment in matters that would otherwise require an Article III tribunal if the parties give their consent? On the last day of the 2013 term, the court decided to take up that question next term in a Seventh Circuit case called Wellness International Network. Here to explain the importance of the wellness case is one of our foremost scholars on bankruptcy jurisdiction, Ralph Brubaker from the University of Illinois College of Law. Professor Brubaker is the Carl Vacata Professor of Law at the University of Illinois College of Law. He served as interim dean of the college in 2008-2009 after serving as associate dean for academic affairs for the previous two years. Professor Brubaker rejoined the Illinois faculty in 2004, returning to his alma mater after teaching courses in bankruptcy, corporate finance, business associations, and contracts at the Emory University School of Law in Atlanta, Georgia for 10 years. Following graduation from law school, Professor Brubaker clerked for Judge James Logan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Later, he practiced in the Bankruptcy and Corporate Reorganization Group Esquire, Sanders, and Dempsey in Cleveland. He is co-author of Bankruptcy Law, Principles, Policies, and Practice with his colleague Charles Tabb, and has written numerous articles exploring the complex jurisdictional and procedural facets of federal bankruptcy proceedings. He was awarded the 2003 Editor's Prize from the American Bankruptcy Law Journal. He's editor-in-chief and contributing author of the Bankruptcy Law Letter, published by West Group, and serves on the editorial advisory board of the American Bankruptcy Institute Law Review. Professor Brubaker also previously served on the executive committee of the board of directors for the ABI 
and is currently a member of the advisory board for the St. John's University School of Law Bankruptcy LLM program. Welcome, Ralph, to ABI Podcast. Thanks very much, Sam. So um, let me just first ask a, a very simple uh, question, which I'm sure is a complicated answer. Uh, what's at stake uh, in wellness, and why is it important? Okay. Well, uh, that is a simple question, and uh, the uh, response is a, a little complex, so let me just give a little background on the wellness case. What you had in wellness was uh, a Chapter 7 trustee uh, trying to recover assets in a trust uh, for which the debtor served as uh, trustee, uh, trying to bring uh, those trust assets uh, into the bankruptcy estate when the debtor filed bankruptcy, uh, using an alter ego uh, theory uh, that uh, the trust was the alter ego of the debtor. Uh, It was essentially a sham should be uh, disregarded so that those uh, assets were regarded uh, assets of uh, the debtor rather than assets of uh, the trust. And the Seventh Circuit in the wellness case said that that cause of action uh, to reach those trust assets uh, that uh, were uh, in the possession of the debtor as trustee, um, that that's just like the kind of uh, action at issue in the Marathon case uh, and the kind of cause of action at issue in uh, the Stern case, that it's a disputed state law cause of action uh, by the bankruptcy estate to recover money or property for the estate, uh, that that would have been a plenary suit under the Bankruptcy Act of 80, 1898, uh, would have been considered a plenary uh, suit under uh, previous bankruptcy statutes going all the way back to English uh, bankruptcy practice. And that seems to be what the cumulative jurisprudence uh, of the uh, court has said with respect to those kinds of traditional plenary uh, suits. The parties have a constitutional right to final judgment uh, from an Article Three. Uh, judge in that kind of uh, suit. And that's sort of the first thing that's at issue uh, in the wellness case that the Supreme Court granted cert on. Um, is, that a pl- is that the kind of action in which the parties have, uh, in particular the defendant, the debtor in this case, uh, have the right to final judgment uh, from an Article Three uh, judge? Um, and that's um, sort of uh, not beyond dispute. Uh, there are some uh, legitimate grounds to question whether or not that would be uh, the kind of suit on which um, uh, the debtor has a right to final judgment for an Article Three judge. Um, but even uh, if it is the kind of action on which uh, the uh, defendant has the right to final judgment from Article Three uh, district court, uh, the bankruptcy court... Um, held that the debtor, the defendant in this case, had waived its right, any right that it might have to final judgment uh, from an Article Three uh, district court, because it just didn't raise that uh, issue until after the bankruptcy judge had already entered a uh, judgment against uh, the debtor. Uh, didn't raise it, uh, in fact, until uh, appeal, uh, sort of belatedly in the district court, after all the briefing was in, uh, started raising uh, this issue. The district court said, well, uh, you had waived uh, that issue 
by that point. Um, the Seventh Circuit ultimately concluded, uh, no, that's not uh, a waivable issue. This constitutional rights final judgment from an Article III judge um, is not uh, a waivable uh, issue. Um, and uh, that's the other thing that the Supreme Court uh, uh, granted cert on. Uh, is the right to final judgment from an Article III judge uh, a waivable uh, issue or not? And then there's a subsidiary issue there. Uh, if it is uh, waivable, uh, does the waiver have to be uh, expressed? Do the parties have to expressly uh, consent to final judgment from the Article III bankruptcy judge? Or can that uh, consent be implied uh, through litigation conduct, uh, like we had in this case, waiver by failure to uh, raise uh, the issue. So those are the issues that are up for uh, decision. The Supreme Court granted on, uh, cert on in the wellness case. Great. So we do have a split here, right? We have the Ninth Circuit, um, which uh, held in executive benefits that. Um, uh, a bankruptcy court may enter judgment in an encore matter with the party's consent, right? Yes. And then uh, uh, we have, in contrast, the Fifth and Sixth Circuits, um, which have held that the party's consent is insufficient uh, on the, the separation of powers uh, grounds and Article Three uh, grounds. And then the Seventh Circuit, it seems like, has a... Um, a slightly different take on it, if you will. Um, it's uh, similar, I think, to executive benefits um, in the sense, but but they are also distinguishing stern claims from non-core claims, if you will. Is that is that roughly? Um, yes, and that's what uh, that's what makes the cert grant in this particular case a little um, uh, odd uh, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what the Seventh Circuit actually held uh, was that this was a stern claim, uh, mm-hmm. that it was a statutory core cause of action. The statute categorized it as a core cause of action or core proceeding, but that that would be unconstitutional for a bankruptcy judge to enter uh, final judgment. Um, so what they were dealing with was uh, what many people have called uh, the statutory gap. That, with respect to these so-called stern claims, uh, what others have called core but unconstitutional uh, claims, there were these supposed statutory gaps that the statute didn't expressly deal with what bankruptcy judges could or could not do with respect to these core but unconstitutional uh, claims. Um, that's what the Supreme Court decided in Arkison, that there was no statutory gap. Uh, uh, at least right. with respect to proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law, they said, well, you just sever the unconstitutional portion. If it's not categorized as a core claim, then it's a non-core uh, claim so that uh, you have the statutory authority to do what the statute says you can do with respect to non-core claims in your proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law. There's a similar argument with respect to the statutory gap with respect to consent that the consent provision of the bankruptcy jurisdiction statute only allows uh, bankruptcy judges to enter final judgment with consent of the parties in non-core proceedings, doesn't uh, authorize them to do so in core proceedings. 
Well, uh, that's what the Seventh Circuit said, is uh, we're only saying that they can't do this in the statutory gap. Right? We're not saying that consent doesn't uh, work at all. Uh, we're not saying that 157C2 is unconstitutional. Uh, we're just saying that in the statutory gap, it's not only a statutory problem, it's also a constitutional problem. Right? That if Congress is going to create a non-Article III uh, tribunal, uh, it's up to Congress to say uh, what that non-Article III tribunal can and cannot uh, adjudicate with or without uh, consent of the litigants. And that has separation of powers implications in and of itself, that the courts can't, uh, on their own, create non-Article III tribunals and vest them with various kinds of jurisdiction, including jurisdiction by uh, consent. The problem is that issue seems to have gone away, right, with the court holding in Arkansas that there is no statutory gap right. uh, with respect to proposed findings and conclusions. Um, presumably there's no statutory gap with respect to consent uh, either. So uh, the actual holding of the Seventh Circuit uh, in the wellness case seems to have been implicitly overruled uh, by the Arkansas uh, decision. So the only consent issue that's left then is the larger, more extreme consent position that the parties can never right, uh, confer final judgment jurisdiction on an Article Three uh, tribunal with uh, consent. If the parties have a right to final judgment from an Article Three judge in a particular cause of action, they cannot waive that right, which uh, would mean that 157C2 is unconstitutional. The Seventh Circuit didn't hold that, uh, but that seems to be the only consent issue that's left for the court uh, to decide uh, uh, in this cert grant from wellness. Right. Let's, um, let's talk a little about, a bit about the implied consent um, mm-hmm. that you uh, described. Um, in wellness, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it was argued that the defendant had impliedly consented by failing to object in the bankruptcy court. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm confused here. Um, don't the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure say that consent must be expressed? Yes, uh, but if the statute authorizes uh, implied consent, then the bankruptcy rules cannot uh, sort of override uh, the statute. And, of course, the rules can be amended, um, and uh, I, would, I would assume that if uh, the court upholds the propriety of implied consent, that uh, the rules likely uh, would be uh, amended. Um, but the statute on its face doesn't expressly require uh, express uh, consent, if you will. And again, and in the magistrate context, the sort of parallel uh, universe here, the Supreme Court has held that a party may impliedly consent to having a magistrate judge enter a final judgment, correct? That's That's exactly right. In fact, the bankruptcy consent provision was expressly modeled after the uh, consent provision in the Federal Magistrate Act uh, of 1979. And the Supreme Court um, in Rule v. Withrow uh, held that that provision that just required, quote-unquote, consent uh, without any other uh, modifiers, that uh, that consent could be inferred from uh, a party's litigation conduct uh, in the form of a waiver by failure to 
properly raise the right to kind of judgment from an, from an Article III judge. Right. Implied consent in the bankruptcy context, I think, has some other uh, issues that might be of concern as a matter of strategy, right? I mean, if consent uh, can't be implied, um, couldn't a party in litigation avoid raising the issue until the last minute and potentially disrupting proceedings and forcing a late transfer to a district court? Yes. I mean, there's only so much you can do in trying to force someone to um, play their cards one way uh, or the other. Uh, And if they don't respond when you say, do you consent, um, and there's no implied uh, consent, uh, arguably they haven't expressly consented. Uh, So it gives them, um, in a sense, two bites at the apple. Uh, If they like the bankruptcy judge's uh, decision, they can just go along with it. But if they don't, they could step forward and say, well, I never expressly consented to judgment uh, from uh, the bankruptcy judge, uh, which is why uh, sort of a lack of some kind of implied uh, consent is so uh, problematic. And the Supreme Court has recognized this in all sorts of contexts, Mm -hmm. that if if what you're dealing with is a waivable right, at some point, your failure to assert that right has to constitute uh, a waiver uh, of that uh, right. Otherwise, uh, the litigants can uh, play games uh, with their rights uh, and not only sort of sandbag the other party, but sandbag the court, disrupt the proceedings in all sorts of um, um, unseemly ways. Right. Well, just game playing. Right. Which, exactly. Which you would think the court would not want to encourage. That's right. But there are all sorts of places at which you can draw the line that, right, if you haven't uh, objected by this point, right, uh, then you will be taken to have waived uh, your right. Well, you can draw that line at various stages in the proceeding. And we saw this under the Bankruptcy Act of 1898, where uh, the Supreme Court um, expressly validated the concept of referees finally adjudicating uh, traditional plenary suits with consent of the litigants, well, they also uh, upheld an implied consent concept. And the line, the place where that line was drawn, that you have to have uh, objected to proceedings before the referee before this point, otherwise you will be taken to have consented to a final judgment from the referee, that line uh, moved a little bit. Uh, early on, the court and its decision seemed to indicate that if you hadn't sort of objected to the proceedings, summary proceedings before the referee, sort of at the earliest possible time without sort of participating on the merits, you would be taken to have waived your right to a plenary suit in the district court. Then in 1944, we got this decision in Klein v. Kaplan that moved that line way back uh, all the way to final judgment that said uh, if the litigant objects to summary uh, proceedings before the referee at any time before the referee enters a judgment, then that will be sufficient to preserve that litigant's right uh, to final judgment uh, in a plenary suit in the district court. Congress responded to Clancy Kaplan by amending the statute and moving the line back to the uh, sort of the upset of the proceedings, uh, basically saying by statute that uh, if you don't uh, raise or object to the summary proceedings before the referee, 
uh, in your uh, answer, response, formal pleading, right, uh, timely filed, uh, within the time to file that uh, piece of paper, you'll be taken to have uh, consented to the summary proceedings before uh, the referee. So even if implied consent is a valid concept, uh, the court could draw that line, right, uh, the sort of point of no return for the litigant, right, either uh, raise your right or lose it. Uh, they could draw that line uh, at various places during the proceeding. Right. Well, let's um, look ahead to the uh, oral argument. This is going to be uh, up for the Supreme Court term that begins in October, uh, after all. And so reading the um, oral argument transcripts uh, from the most recent case, uh, uh, Arkison uh, case, suggests that the court might be uh, divided, if not closely divided, on the consent issue. You've got uh, the Chief Justice and Justice Scalia um, suggesting uh, a fair amount of skepticism, I think, that consent can cure uh, constitutional difficulties. Um, There's one uh, particular uh, quote from oral argument where the Chief Justice uh, put it to counsel for the government at one point, quote, the authority to decide cases is our constitutional birthright, and your position is that two parties who come in off the street if they agree, can take that away from us. That doesn't sound like someone who's uh, disposed to being uh, hospitable to uh, jurisdiction by consent. That's true. That, that There uh, seem to be at least a couple of justices that are predisposed uh, to be skeptical uh, of consent. Of course, that uh, quote uh, is a bit misleading because uh, the Article Three District Court has complete control uh, and doesn't have to let proceedings uh, with consent go forward in the bankruptcy court. In fact, if the if if a particular district uh, didn't like uh, consent uh, proceedings, uh, they could not uh, refer reference on consent uh, proceedings. They could say uh, that we're going to withdraw reference if the parties have consented uh, to uh, final judgment in the bankruptcy court. Uh, so the district court has complete control. The, the parties can't take anything away from the district courts that the district courts don't want uh, taken uh, away from them. They have complete control over uh, the reference and withdrawal uh, of the reference. Uh, it's just a matter of do the uh, federal district courts uh, in bankruptcy cases and in general have the ability uh, to let the parties uh, have uh, a non-Article III adjudication if the parties want uh, a non-Article III uh, adjudication. We've got a very, very long history of the Supreme Court uh, signing off on permitting the parties to have a non-Article III adjudication if the parties consent uh, to a non-Article III adjudication, and the federal district courts, the federal courts in general, including the Supreme Court, giving uh, those adjudications uh, the same effect as a judgment from an Article III uh, court. Uh, so there may be um, some hyperbole suggesting that there uh, <laughs> is something uh, uh, sort of dramatically uh, wrong with these kinds of proceedings, but we have a long history that seems to indicate that uh, these kinds of proceedings uh, are not unconstitutional. In fact, uh, they uh, have a very long history, actually going back uh, to English um, uh, uh, court proceedings, 
uh, and that I think uh, the court will likely ultimately conclude that uh, uh, adjudications, not Article III adjudications with the consent of the litigants, uh, is in fact constitutional. Okay, we've got your prediction as well as a preview of the Brubaker amicus brief, I think, right? Perhaps. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, the other uh, point, to be fair, is that going in the other direction, um, as uh, uh, Justice uh, Kagan uh, suggested during uh, argument, uh, could have implications for invalidating the magistrate system, which, again, yeah, you would think the court would be a very uh, um, reluctant uh, to do. Uh, at least uh, some members of the court would probably uh, be reluctant uh, to do. Uh, the magistrate uh, system has uh, proven to be uh, very, very beneficial in supporting uh, the functions of the federal district courts. And the Bankruptcy Court, likewise, has been uh, proven very, very uh, beneficial, very, very uh, efficient uh, in handling the uh, bankruptcy docket of the uh, federal courts. Um, it, would, it would be a very, very dramatic turnaround if uh, the court held that the consent jurisdiction of both uh, the bankruptcy courts and the federal magistrate judges was unconstitutional. Right. And, of course, consent is um, critical to things like arbitration, which the court has uh, repeatedly uh, endorsed. Yes, even the justices who seem skeptical of consent in this context uh, seem to be very, very big uh, proponents of uh, arbitration, the Federal Arbitration Act. Uh, if, if the litigants can't take a matter away from a federal district court by consent in a bankruptcy matter or a civil matter that would go to a magistrate, how can they do it with respect to uh, arbitrators? Um, perhaps you can find ways to distinguish arbitrations from these other consent adjudications, but it's not facially obvious that they're all that uh, different. So if you go down that road of saying that consent in this context is unconstitutional, you may open up a can of worms that you'd rather not be open. Right. Right. I seem to recall the line in the Stern opinion um, that uh, stated that um, Stern didn't change all that much. Right? So I guess we'll find yeah, out. <laughs> well, I said lots of other things that, that also seem to indicate that not only uh, is consent uh, okay, that, that um, uh, 157C2 is not problematic, but also that implied uh, consent uh, is okay. Uh, it was all in the context of responding to a particular novel statutory uh, argument that was uh, raised uh, in the Stern case, but the way they addressed it was in very sweeping terms. Uh, they said that, look, uh, what you're raising is goes to sort of the allocation of power as between uh, the adjudicatory power as between the federal district courts and the non-Article three bankruptcy judges that set forth in 157, uh, and nothing in the sort of way that 157 draws that line between things that have to go to the district court and things that have to go to the bankruptcy court implicates uh, non-waivable rights. Well, of course, that whole line between what goes to the district court and what goes to the bankruptcy uh, court was uh, constructed to reflect the constitutional line between what has to go to the district court and, and what doesn't have to go to district court and can be finally adjudicated by the bankruptcy judge. So 
that indicates, and they cited 157C2 for that proposition, that nothing in this division of responsibilities implicates any non-waivable rights. Well, the statute is, supposed, is, is designed to codify the constitutional rights. And, and they, you know, all the constitutional issues were certainly on the court's mind uh, in writing that opinion. It seems hard to believe that the constitutional implications of that uh, statement uh, escaped them. And in the context of the same argument, they uh, said not only is it a waivable right, but you waived it by failing to raise it and had uh, extensive quotations that right, at some point any right, even constitutional rights, uh, are waived by failing to, to raise uh, those rights. So there's lots of indications that uh, bankruptcy adjudications, bankruptcy judge adjudications by consent should be uh, upheld as constitutional, that implied consent should also be upheld uh, as uh, constitutional. Uh, um, but we'll just have to wait and see what the Supreme Court says. Okay. We've got your prediction, Ralph. I think that's I think that's pretty good. We have it on record. I've been, I've been, I've been wrong before. <laughs> Not that I can recall. Um, that's all the time we have for today, but uh, we very much look forward to the oral argument uh, in the wellness case. And uh, thank you again, Ralph, for explaining what is a very uh, complex but um, nonetheless uh, uh, important um upcoming ruling uh, by the Supreme Court. Thanks very much, Ralph. My pleasure. Uh, enjoyed our discussion. And we thank our audience for listening. There are 150 podcasts online at abi.org. You can uh, view any, listen to any of them. Uh, just click on the newsroom section of the website. And so until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day. Thank you.